suffering of the world, born out of its conviction to be an autonomous and solitary fact, surrounded by absolute nihil, is itself already hell, an emotional hell, not dissimilar from the anguished isolation of the Ismaili God. It is there, in hell, that worldly powers can threaten a subject with metaphysical annihilation. So to break and to submit them to the dictates of their own laws. Conversely, heaven consists in the realization of the unity that always subtends all facets and dimensions of reality. Rebels always depart from heaven to launch their incursions into the world, ambushing and striking the parameters of objectivity that worldly powers impose as natural laws. The shift from damnation to salvation, from the fear of apocalypse that haunts a world locked in a solitary confinement, to the joy of apocatastasis, is as dramatic as it is imperceptible. universal transformation engendered by a shift of perspective towards reality is a cosmic redemption that carries little material trace. Matt, and about a week ago, Petra and I spoke with Federico Campagna about his most recent book from Bloomsbury, which is called Prophetic Culture, Recreation for Adolescence. We'll link to that in the show notes, so you should check that out. We spoke with Federico maybe a year ago now, uh, so you're welcome to go back and have a listen to that as well. This time around, we ended up speaking about some slightly different things, although there is some overlap. We talked about the end of the world, narrative, time, metaphysics, death, and what it means to die well. Uh, it sounds far more depressing than it actually is. You'll hear Petra got hung up and wasn't able to join right away, uh, but jumps in on the second part of the conversation. I've had a few people request that I include a list of the music that we use for these episodes. And so you'll also find links to those artists as well. I should have been doing that all along, frankly. All right, I think that's it. Here's Federico.
Oh, there you are. Hey. How's it going? Tired, man. You? It's been a long day already. Oh, yeah? Why's that? That's tough work. You? Uh, well, it's nine o'clock here. I just got done rushing my kid over to kindergarten. Yeah, um, this is how it starts in my day, too. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's madness trying to get him uh, dressed and out of the house. You know, my mom was a single mother and she had three of us. And I'm just like, I don't know how she did it, frankly. Did she have a stick? She had spoons. <laughs> that might be the secret you know yeah <laughs> we, did it, but we can't do this anymore yeah we broke many spoons on our behinds but, growing up <laughs> exactly i don't think it's legal anymore these days though well okay uh, yeah so uh, we're waiting for uh petra yeah she should be on momentarily but maybe we uh can get started by the way did you see there's a volcano erupting in spain this morning yes is it still the same one I guess so. This is the first I heard of it. Yeah, it's been erupting for a, for a few days. It has destroyed. Oh, I didn't know that. Well, it shows how much I'm tuned into what's happening uh, in the world. <laughs> but yeah, I saw a um, live stream of it this morning, and um, the sound, even from several miles away, was incredible. This low rumbling, uh, like the earth was really had something to say. It's a small island off the coast of Sicily, which is a volcano. It's not really an island, it's like a triangle, basically. It's a, it's a mountain that comes out of the sea. And there's a few houses all around the village, and I stayed there for a few nights. The, the volcano erupts every day, so it's a constant eruption, but only on one side, so the houses are on the other side. It's just that the, the earth rumbles constantly. Yeah. So during the day, it's fine, but then at night, the, the, the bed kind of like conveys the, the vibrations, and it's crazy. I'm sure if you're there all the time, you get used to it. But what was it like just visiting? Very strange. It's yeah. kind of like unnerving. It sounds like some sort of overproduced horror film, you know, with this kind of like, <laughs> uh, yeah. like yeah. new book out from Bloomsbury titled Prophetic Culture, Recreation for Adolescents. It's a, it's a wonderful book, very rich, filled with lots of interesting ideas. Uh, I actually got mine quite late. I think there were some delays in production having to do with COVID, etc. cetera. Um, but yeah, I finally got it and uh, read it a few weeks back. And then knowing that I was speaking to you today, I took another look at it uh, yesterday and I was really struck by how apocalyptic, there's a sense of fatalism perhaps about the end of the world here, even an acceptance of it, as though this is just kind of something that happens from time to time, right? And a big part of this book, as I understand, wants to consider like the intellectual or spiritual work perhaps that is necessary in a post-future scenario. So anyway, if there's something in there you want to respond to, but um, one of the things I'm really curious about is who are you writing this book for? Yes, as you pointed out, the book does have an apocalyptic tone. But yeah, I would say more precisely that it has an apocastatic tone. What is the difference? Apocalypse has to do with the end of the world and the final judgment of all things. So it has to do with a world coming to an end and a bench being set by the judge, the great judge, to decide who is going to pass and be among the blessed and who is going to be among the damned. 
So there is a moral implication about an apocalypse, so to say, at least in the way we understand it. Also, when we talk about uh, a climate apocalypse, often we have we subtend the moral implication about it. That, for example, it is our our fault that this apocalypse is coming to be. When we talk about the end of uh, great civilizations, the apocalypse of the Roman Empire, for example, together with, for example, Gibbons, we might think that fundamentally it happened because they deserved it. Now, in the way in which I see the the end of the world in, in this book, I, I leave aside any moral consideration about the fact of whether we deserve as a, as a world, and I would specify what I mean, as a society to come to an end. I just observe that in history, societies, civilizations, ideas about reality, what I call a world, come and go. It is normal for a civilization, which is not just a series of economic and social structures, but it is a particular a hypothesis, a particular idea about what the world fundamentally is, what kind of stuff makes up the world, whether materials, immaterials, what kind of populations populated, whether angels or molecules or passports. So this general hypothesis is what is fundamentally a world and a civilization. I just consider um, neutrally, so to say, that in history, these hypotheses have come and they have gone. My own personal background coming from the south of Italy uh, kind of gave me uh, ample demonstration that that is the case. In Sicily, for example, we, we have been conquered by almost everyone. Uh, I don't think there's have been, there's been a moment in which Sicily was Sicily, probably ever since the Bronze Age. But we have also seen because of that, that with the passing of different dominations, often also different worlds were passing through the island, different ideas about what it means to be alive, what the world fundamentally is, and so on and so forth. And they have remained also in the very fabric of our cities. So you can walk down the street and see in the ruins, the strata, not just of different architectures, the Greeks, the Romans, the Arabs, the Byzantine, the Spanish, the French, the German, and so on and so forth, the Italians at the end, but also different ideas and different ways of being in the world. The passage from one stratum to the next often, not always, coincided with an apocalypse, so to say, so with the, the end of the previous world. But it didn't have a moral consideration about it. It just simply is a fact of history. That's why I talk more about apocatastasis, which is another idea. Apocatastasis is a way of looking at the end of things that doesn't stress the moral implication of it, but stresses the fact that whenever things come to an end, they don't fall into nothingness and disappear, but they are all reunited into one. So for something to die is to fall back into the great storehouse of infinite possibilities from which people with their imagination take out individual possibilities of life and then replicate them. So it is apocalyptic in the, on the one hand, but it is not doom and gloom, so to say. But more specifically, the, the way in which I look at this apocalypse, mm, puts its accent on two aspects. The first has to do with apocatastasis. So the fact that worlds, civilizations, fundamentally are hypotheses about reality, each of which gives us a particular world in which we live and we do certain things. And they all come out from the great storehouse of infinite imagination, what used to be called back in the days, God's mind. Hmm? Or we can call today the infinite imagination of the human or of awareness or consciousness, whatever you like. On the other hand, I go specifically to, to, to see how 
the current society in which we live, and I say we in the sense that you are in the United States and I am in the United Kingdom, and so both our uh, the places where we live exist within a certain world, which means we usually, people around us share a certain idea about reality. This particular idea seems to be coming to an end. Once again, not because of any particular moral consideration, but simply because it is normal that these kind of things come to pass. Yeah. There are indications that, that point to this. In reference to this aspect of this idea coming to pass, what I, what I want to emphasize by looking at the so-called apocalyptic aspect of it is the fact that when things come to pass and come to an end, you have to start thinking about what you're leaving behind. When a world comes to an end, you have to start thinking about what you leave behind. This is very obvious when we think about ecological concerns. For example, our particular way of um, understanding the environment today, thankfully, is that we have to leave it to the people that will come after us in a way that is not just uh, the devastation of a desert. We need to leave them something that somehow is able to, to be alive and to give the, the rise to new environments, to new forms of life. Yeah. You were talking somewhere in there about how in more stable times, the idea of nobility is how to, uh, has to do with how to live well. But at the end of the world, it has to do more with how to die well. As I understand it, what you're offering here is uh, one way <laughs> of doing that. Can you say more about wh what does it mean to, to die well? Well, dying well is a, is a strange experience, um, which I think has many steps. In my particular personal experience, um, I first felt it when, after having a, a child, I realized at some point that the day that I was living, my present, was not just my present. It was also my child's past. I remembered the particular tinge that the sky had in the, 90, in the early 90s, when I was a child, or in the late 80s. I remember the particular feeling of the air. I remember how that particular time, being my past, had a certain atmosphere, simply for the fact that it was my past. And I realized that my present, which to me seems to so neat and clear, in fact, at the same time, simultaneously, as well as being my present, is also my son's past. And it's very different that very same day in my son's past is different from how it is in my, in my, my own present. Right. Living as somebody else's past is already, I think, a good kind of like beginning to start thinking about what it means to die well. It means, first of all, to delink oneself from one's own present. Not absolutely, but at least partially. Let's say doubling your own presence into the world. You are present in the present, but you're also present in the past. You are your own present. You are somebody else's past. So to a certain extent, you are alive and you are dead simultaneously. You're yourself and you're a ghost. And so you act on these two different registers. As a writer, you have this experience sometimes, depending on what you write, of course. If you write journalism, maybe not so much. If you write literature, probably much more, or poetry, that simultaneously you are intervening, so to say, in the literature of your own particular time. But at the same time, you're writing a book that, whether you like it or not, um, will have to speak to whoever picks it up, whenever, you know, in 50 years' time, in 200 years' time. And you will have to withstand the judgment, not only of your contemporaries, but also the, of the people that will come way after you. This is already, I think, the beginning of this idea of dying well. Yeah, that idea of like doubling your presence where you are living uh, both in the present and at the same time in the past. 
seems to entail a, an incredible act of imagination to kind of do that well. And as you say, it, it entails a kind of discontinuity, right? Because you can't in reality be in, in both at the same time. Exactly. In fact, one of the things that you write about is that no two subjects can inhabit the same time unless they sing the world as a chorus. The same past, present, and future will take shape for them only as long as they shall be singing in metaphysical accord, which there's a sense of performativity there and makes me think of the importance of repetition and ritual. And like, I know you're using the singing thing as a metaphor, but it got me thinking about actual singing and where I've kind of encountered that thing before, you know, where everyone or mostly everyone is singing, literally singing the same song, the same melody, or like harmonizing if they're able to do that. Um, And I can't help think of like, you know, growing up, going to church where several hundred people doing exactly that. I've just become like more and more convinced that there is a magic to be found in a group of people singing with one voice, moving together to the same rhythm, occupying the same uh, time segment, maybe you would say. For me, that's an act of world making. Um, It just makes me think whatever comes next, however we want to think about recreating the world, uh, song will be important to that. I had a similar experience that you had because I spent my own childhood in in a choir uh, singing for many years until my voice changed. And at that point, I started studying flute and then guitar. So, yeah, music has always been a part of my own life. And also, um, in that sense, then I use that particular metaphor because I had a, like you said, I had a firsthand experience of how that is the case. And when you sing in a choir, you have this situation in which potentially you could sing anything. So whatever you are singing is conventional. There is no necessity to that particular singing. Then you and the group of people decide to sing that particular thing. And you are agents in that. It's your decision altogether to sing that. But after a little while, especially I used to sing a lot of um, religious music. So Palestrina, Monteverdi, kind of like early Baroque Renaissance music. You have this feeling of entrancement you get entranced into the music and then the music somehow leads you at that point like you're no longer so actively the agent of the singing but you start being sung by the music yourself sounds much more mystical and esoteric than it is it is a normal experience for anyone who has a band and does a jam session after a while for example yeah yeah. and so that is quite similar to the way in which people make world with the difference, of course, that when you sing, you are very aware that it is a particular activity that you're doing in a particular time in front of an audience and so on. And then you realize that even when you are entranced, it's just temporary. Then there is so-called real life. When you make world, you don't have that possibility. You tend to be entranced completely. Now, maybe I would like to explain a little bit what I mean when I say when you make world, because it might not be um, immediately clear. The fact is that when we understand when we look around ourselves in any moment in in our life, we create the environment that surrounds us. This is obvious if we think about it. Of course, the, 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 the room that you see outside yourself, you're actually seeing inside your mind, so to say, whether the mind is localized in your brain, that's discussable, but let's imagine the mind is a locus, is a place. Perception is then localized within. And then you project it outside as if it was outside of you. That's how you deal with it. This is, of course, the indication that the world you inhabit has an artificial quality to it. It is not natural. The difference being that natural would entail that the world is always and already there outside of your mind, the world as you perceive it. 
artificial means that if you are perceiving it within, then by the very fact that it is within your, your perceptive abilities, within your cognition, within your act of ordering the world or ordering your perceptions, then you are at least in part a co-creator of it. So it is at least in part or possibly to a, to a great extent or to a full extent artificial. <clears throat> so in, in that case, when we, talk, when we talk about making world, I mean it literally, each of us, provides themselves with the environment where they live by artificially creating it within their mind. So each person has a different world because the mind, uh, I mean, according to some philosophy, is collective to the extent that there is only one mind with many different instantiations. But in our experience, I can say for certain that my mind is mine. I cannot say for certain that your mind is equal, is the same, identical to my own. Then they might be different. For that reason, since your way of ordering your own perceptions, endowing yourself with an environment with, which has qualities like space, for example, like time, sure. like names, identities, all things that are nowhere else to be find, found, certainly not in so-called nature. Then it means that if you and I, we want to cooperate and collaborate in some way, then we need to find some common ground. So we need to find some ways of synchronizing our making world. And that's when we start creating common uh, shared worlds. We call them, I usually in the book, I define them in their biggest possible instantiation. When these worlds are very, very large and they are shared in common, not because necessarily every person believes in them, but because they are used as if they were common, then they become civilizations. General hypotheses about how should we order time? How should we order space? What should we deem as existing or non-existing? And so on and so forth. Mm -hmm. As part of this activity of making world, one aspect of it is the activity of making time. And that's where I talk about singing and rhythm a lot. Time itself, as metaphysicians and and scientists also know, is not something that exists in the way that we imagine objects to exist by themselves. Time is completely artificial. It doesn't have an existence of its own outside of the experience of somebody ordering it, perceiving it, counting it, said Aristotle. There is an element of that, observing it. It's entirely dependent on that. And I I consider it in particular as entirely dependent on this general activity of making world. So I, I get to the point of defining time itself as the rhythm of the activity of making world. Let's imagine that making world is a narrative. It's like singing a story. Yeah reciting a story, or as they did in antiquity, singing a story, the particular cadence, the particular rhythm, the particular intonation, but eh, that mm-hmm. is the time, mm-hmm. the, the time for that world. And so, yeah, we find already the notion of music and rhythm yeah. uh, as, as a constitutive component of our everyday metaphysics, yeah. both in the metaphor and also quite literally with the by, if we understand metaphors as ways for us to understand things that in themselves might be um, irreducible to specific clear concepts. The ideas of singing and, and time and rhythm, that, that all kind of brings that together in a way that is meaningful. There's another metaphor that you don't really develop very much. It's almost a throwaway line. You say the act of worlding requires constant mending. 
And that got me thinking, it just immediately brought to mind something that Mark C. Taylor writes. I mean, he's doing, he's writing in a deconstructive mode, you know, he's a Duridian and such, but he says the task of the tailor is to cover rather than stitch, to veil rather than unveil. For Taylor, it's not this ex nihilo situation, right? The text, or maybe in this case, you know, a little closer to what we're talking about, the grammar of worlding is something that is stitched together from the from the tissues of previous worlds. Um, so I'm just kind of really curious about this idea of creating a world out of nothing. What does that mean? Well, on the fact of mending and, the, and the, what in particular you were commenting in terms of veiling, somehow creating a shroud or a veil over things to make yeah. sense of them. This is of course already in the very word to reveal. When we say to reveal something, we might be um, maybe tempted to believe that the word derives from the same as to unveil something. Mm? So you unveil the truth, you reveal the truth. Mm -hmm. In fact, revealing and unveiling are one of the opposite of the other. Unveiling has to do with taking away the veil, but revealing has to do with putting back the veil on. Revelum, so to put back, revelare, is to veil again. Mm -hmm. So in what way can we understand the fact that, for example, the book of Revelations has to do not with the taking away of the veil, but with the putting the veil on top. That's because to make sense of things in the way in which we understand sense, so fundamentally in a narrative way, which mm -hmm. could be conceptual or mathematical even, but that somehow is related to um, a, a, a linguistic quality, a literary quality, for example, creating characters and objects, concepts themselves are literary characters. Uh, so having to do with um, sense, having to do with language and, and this narrative activity has to do with the fact, with this activity exactly of revealing. So putting over bare things, a veil of narrative, a veil of language, which is the place where we can see sense emerging. Hmm? It's a bit like coating, um, coating a mirror, you know, yes. when you coat it, really, then the image comes out. Right, but the, but the so, thing with the mirror is that you, you're letting the metal shine through too, right? You're not completely covering it over. It's obscured, mm -hmm. but it's not completely opaque. Oh, yeah, exactly. In fact, it is a veil. We don't say to entomb the truth. We say to reveal the truth. Like, it's not entirely entombed. It's not like buried in the ground. It's veiled. And this is the, the, the quality that I find in particular in what I call prophetic culture. Prophetic culture is a particular way of revealing things. So talking about things that are impossible in themselves to contemplate in their naked truth, for example, existence. But, but they can be discussed by revealing, so by veiling them within a narrative coating, which means sense, which means culture, which means language. But then we have to be careful to veil them. A veil is thin. You know, it's by definition a thin veil, you know, like a shroud, it's something thin that re that reveals that and, and in the sense also that you that lets you see through it a little bit, at least the shape. Yeah. The particular form of culture that is capable of doing that, coating without bearing its object, is what I define as prophetic culture. A lot of contemporary culture, on the other hand, has the pretense of substituting itself to the truth. To the extent that we might mix what we say, our linguistic productions, whether scientific, political, like citizenship, financial, like the existence of money, we mistake them as facts of nature, as things that really, truly exist exactly as they are. I would say more like literary in the sense of 
um, like a literal literal interpretation when you understand something the letter of it without going moving forward this literal interpretation of the world in which we we think that things like citizenships for example money these are identities genders these things actually exist so they're not just a narrative veiling to try to have a relationship with something that is completely beyond them ultra metaphysical but no, we usually think, well, these are real things. You know, they, we have to deal with these things because, you know, the economy, <laughs> that's a real thing, the financial economy in particular. Now, this, this is a mistake. This is the difference between revealing and bearing. Well, this is like bearing the ineffable heart of reality. So that thing which doesn't fall into language and concepts, bearing it so deeply that you completely forget about it. Yeah. But the culture does the opposite. No, that's that gets into. We, I think we touched a little bit on this uh, when we talked last time, um, but kind of through the language of uh, the idol and the icon. And I, Petra just texted me. She's, she's hoping to jump on in a few minutes. But she's. I know she's very interested in sort of like Russian iconography. She'll probably have something to uh, say about that. But I was really curious about this idea of the. Um, I mean, you've already mentioned prophetic culture, but the sort of constitutive elements that uh, that make that up. And you talk about this contradictory hybrid uh, thing called the tetrapharmacon. Um, so can you talk a little bit about that configuration and why that's important for what you're up to? The, the attempt there with the notion of the tetrapharmacon, the four-folded medicine, um, literally, was to, to try to define what kind of um, content, so what, in the terms of content, what kind of content would be suitable as a legacy to leave the, to the people that come after the end of a certain world, after the end of a certain civilization. The idea there, of course, depended on, on my particular analysis of what kind of people come after the end of a certain world. I call them archaics and adolescents. Mm -hmm. I look at their particular subjectivity. And because of their particular subjectivity, then I thought that for that particular situation in which they find themselves at the beginning of a new world and at the end of another one amidst the ruins and so on, mm. then a particular type of legacy is especially beneficial. So a particular legacy that would allow them to restart making world in a different way. And to create that legacy, I was trying to combine as a four-folded medicine elements coming from different experiences that we have developed over the past few thousand years in terms of making world. Now, we can put together things that come from very different eras in, in history, even for us today, when we, try to, when we start to understand ourselves as the past of somebody else. If we understand our present time as the past of the people that will come after us, we will become the past together with any other past. The past is all simultaneous. 10,000 years ago, 2,000 years ago, 50 years ago, now, from the perspective of somebody coming into the, uh, after our own time, we are all equally past in the same way that to the experience yeah. of many, Gilgamesh and Nectanibo, the Pharaoh, they are more or less yeah. in the same fog of the past. And so we can deal with and take stuff from the ancient past and from the recent past with ease because they happen somehow simultaneously in the past. The figures that I suggested to take, the metaphysician, the shaman, the mystic and the prophet, they come from different moments and different eras in time. The metaphysician in particular is best exemplified by modernity. The shaman is best exemplified by um, forms of worlding that historians for a long time described as archaic slash primitive. 
The mystic is defined by another form of worlding that is typical of other moments in time, the so-called late antique medieval, and so on and so forth. The prophet is, is also like, um, is a figure that comes across different times and different eras, and that's the one that I am more interested in. The metaphysician, the shaman, and the mystic suggest three different ways in which we can make world, and I try to combine them. And to bind them together into a message, into a legacy to leave to the people that come after us, I had to think not only of the content of this legacy, so the particular suggestions about how to make world, in, in the interest of people that come at the beginning of a new world or at the end of an, of an old one, but also a particular coating, something that would allow these three things to stick, but also that would allow this message to travel across the end of the world and the beginning of another one, and to be absorbed, so to say, by the people that come. It's a bit like a medicine, uh, in a sense, literally. The, the coating of the medicine and the, and the elements that enhance absorption by the organism is the prophetic element, which is not so much to do, which does not so much have to do with the content, but with style, the cultural yeah. style in which these contents can be conveyed. Yeah, the aesthetic element is a thread that runs throughout. Uh, you said something in there, again, about the, how the past is always already the present, which which sounds to me like a kind of afterlife. I, I'm already convinced that this is the afterlife, but and I'll, uh, I won't get into that. But one of the things that you talk a little bit about it, with this prophetic element, it's not so much about a divinatory, although that's there, it's not primarily about a divinatory impulse or task, right? It's um, in the first place, an existential one. And then you do talk about heaven and hell which is interesting because not many people do that, do that anymore, at least not in the circles that I move in. But uh, yeah, what do you want to say about heaven and hell? The, the prophetic quality of, of, the, of the type of culture that I try to analyze in the book and then also to suggest to embrace, to reshape our contemporary culture of production in the interest of sending them across the end of this world doesn't really have much uh, to do with divinatory abilities or telling the future or, or anything like that. The, the, the quality of it is, has more to do with, as you said, existential, but also metaphysical concerns. Let me explain. When I was saying earlier that a first step to learning to learn how to die well has to do with delinking oneself with one's own, with one's own present, so kind of... Uh, still identifying with oneself in, in your own present, but at the same time, understanding that you live simultaneously in somebody else's past. The result is that you start being a bit detached from both. And then you, you are somehow at the cross points, at the crossroads between these two. That's the kind of position that is typical of the prophet. Not in the sense of um, being only at the meeting point between different times, and that would for example, allow you to see into the future, to see into the past or the present with the same ease. But at being at the crossroads between different times, so delinking oneself from one's own world and understanding that there are other worlds and trying to speak also in a way that speaks to them, but also keeping one foot, so to say, outside of all the worlds, trying to a certain extent to include within your own viewpoint the awareness that worlds are artificial creations the worlds are narrative creations, trying to embrace that narrative quality, their fictional artificial quality, and trying to include within your viewpoint the fact that there is something outside of that narrative that you cannot include narratively, of course, 
but you can you should also not completely forget you should reveal once again rather than try to deny or to bury entirely so this is the the prophetic uh, aspect of, of that message i know you've done some work with like video games and stuff like that and the way that you're just describing this process of world making and stuff makes me think i'm curious how much your work with video games comes through in in this work and the other thing was uh that thing that's kind of coming through that's neither an abyss and it's not a closure of meaning the ineffable maybe is that something that can be built in your opinion to a video game hmm. i'm not entirely sure that it can be built into a video game in the sense that when i talk about the ineffable i don't mean um, uh, a divinity that flies yeah. about what, what i mean is in particular is I think the, the simplest way to reveal what I mean, as in to try to explain using some narrative, uh, in this case, a concept, is through the concept of existence. When we understand existence, the fact that things are, before they are in a particular way, before they are particular things, but the very fact that anything, material, immaterial, to a certain extent can be said to exist. And then the impossibility of defining what we mean by it exists. We can define where it exists, how it exists, with what, under what form, and so on and so forth. But that it exists, that is just outside of the limits of our language. So that is the ineffable, in the sense that it is something that is within reality. To be honest, that is reality. <laughs> to the extent to which reality is, is that. And then to the extent to what reality is a particular reality made of particular things and so on and so forth is the world, is language, is creative and so on and so forth, artificial. But to the extent to which things merely are, that's ineffable. Now, <clears throat> in the case of a video game, the ineffable is already there to the extent to which we realize that that world of the video game exists somehow, but it exists. It is enlivened, it is traversed, it is held up, it is grounded on existence in some form. And we understand, if we start thinking about it, that this existence, although it is blatant, it is the most visible thing of all, is at the same time the most invisible thing of all. This is how, for example, Hermes Trismegistus was talking about his idea of the ineffable divinity saying that God, he calls it God, um, is the most visible and the most invisible of all things. So in a video game, there is no need to insert it. It's already there. What you can insert, if you wish, is reminders. Same as in the world. There is no need to, to insert the ineffable in the world. It's already there, whether we like it or not. Inserting reminders, that is effective. For example, it could be done as forms as glitches for example so sabotaging to a certain extent the smooth operation of the video game or to reveal that there is something beyond it that's the old heideggerian trick of the broken hammer so to say so sabotaging what today is understood as the glitch sometimes it's understood in heideggerian sense sometimes it's not or it could be done also by the particular poetics of the video game the way in which it could be interacting with things outside of the game itself with real life to a certain extent there's another good trick to to explain mystery think of stranger things and the interaction between dungeons and dragons and the reality of their of, of their life 
Um, so there's many ways of inserting creatively some reminders of this ineffable presence. The necessity of inserting it is, is not there because it's already there. Otherwise, nothing will be there. Hey, Petra. Ciao, Petra. Nice to, to meet you. You're talking about the ineffable. And video games. Yeah. How ironic. <laughs> uh, yeah, no, it was just like uh, Matt was asking me about that. We were talking about the um, the um, prophetic culture book and then chatting about, about video games and so on. Yeah, with the possibility of being like in many places at once. Things are just speeding up, uh, I find. So right now I was confused uh, regarding time, which I think is quite is good in relation to your prophetic culture book. We were just in talking about the fact it doesn't exist, no? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, how could how exactly, could it, how yeah. could you be late? How could you? Possibly... Yeah, how could, how could I be late when, when right. time doesn't exist? Yeah, exactly. Uh, and when we are like in the post-futuristic way of living. Uh, but I was really, I was so deeply into your into your reasoning, Cedric, and the grotesque, and I really felt that I wanted to kind of join, I want to join the prophetic culture movement. And I want... There is no such and thing. I want, yeah, and I wanted to, yeah, because I felt that I could be my grotesque self, and also to kind of just indulge in, in being the prophetic voice. But how did you end up with the shaman, the metaphysic, uh, and uh, the mystic? And what are like the differences between them, and why those three? Earlier, I was uh, I was um, responding to to a similar question about uh, the idea of putting them together and what was the, the point in, in putting them together. But I, I didn't actually say why, in particular, I chose those ones. As I was saying, they wish to act as a, as a pharmacon, so as a medicine and poison, uh, to help people that come after the end of a certain world to restart a new world on the basis of their particular subjectivity, of their particular needs. And I, I did not invent those needs on the basis of my own um, imagination, but I tried to observe previous instances of worlds coming to an end and worlds restarting soon after, what we call usually the archaic age, like the archaic age of Greece, after the Hellenic Middle Ages, for example. And I noticed that in that particular subjectivity of the archaic is that we have something similar to the subjectivity of an adolescent. Here's a word that I prefer to teenager. Teenager is connected to a particular age, adolescent to a particular um, subject uh, disposition of the subject. Yeah, way of being. You can always be an adolescent. Yeah. Exactly. Also for the Romans, adolescentia lasted much longer than teenage. It was more correct, probably. Now, on the, we, I noticed that there seems to be a, a, a double tension. On the one hand, the desire to find new forms of order, so new ways of, cre of restructuring reality, a new hypothesis about how we can narrativize this experience of being flooded by raw perceptions, while we are aware that these perceptions somehow are connected with the, the ineffable effect, so to say, of existence. Hmm? we need to kind of coat it because otherwise it's chaos. But at the same time, the adolescents and the archaics tend to be wary of the consequences of restructuring the world. The example I gave in the book is Oedipus, old example, but not for the usual story of him and his mother and so on, or the Sphinx, 
But for the experience that the moment he bridles chaos, he defeats the Sphinx, he creates order. The city flourishes again, he becomes king, and then immediately is destroyed, not by, his, not by destiny, not by his actions, but, the, but by the very order that he, ha he has restored. And Oedipus, like most Greek um, heroes, is a, literally a teenager and certainly an adolescent. So to cater for these two opposite requirements, I combined the metaphysician, the shaman, and the mystic, and then the prophet as a kind of general coating to bind them together. The metaphysician is the one that creates real order, is the one that is the cartographer, is the one that maps things fundamentally. The shaman has... Is, that stands for the factuality. Yes, the metaphysician is the one that basically puts things in their place, has to do with the cataloging of things, to making sure that... We, we are endowed with a world which is ordered, where things are separate, identities are separate, logic is possible, you know, in the way that we understand it, for example, Aristotelian logic, not non-contradiction, all these things. That's what a metaphysician does. It's a particular way of making world. It's the way that is more prevalent in contemporary Western societies, for example, at the moment. The shaman is a different way of making world. So here I'm using, of course, particular characters, particular figures as ways of making it's yeah. not the shaman, it's the shamanistic approach, so to say. Yeah. And the shaman has to do more with regulating the flow. So not so much with cataloging things, but regulating the flow of mutations across the world, within the world, mm. but also regulating the flow that comes from between the world and what is outside of the world. When the ineffable sometimes break through the the, the uh, constructions of language, you might have this disquieting experience of chaos. And the shaman not only regulates the flow of mutations within, but also patrols the border, so to say, between uh, ineffability and language, eternity and time. Would uh, Giordano Bruno be a shaman with his bonding? Giordano Bruno is, is across a few of these, to be honest. Is yeah. is I think is closer to the prophet, in the sense. Yeah, it's the not so much, but not so much because because of what he says, but because of how he says it. The way he yeah. says he says things um, has that particular um, narrative power, which is also the reason, not so much why he died, but the reason why he's still alive. <laughs> I mean, dying yeah. uh, that was an easy yeah. piece. Remaining alive that was difficult. So I would place him more there. While there is a third figure, which is the mystic, that is, has to do with another form of worlding, which is the, let's say, the pendant, the, the goes together with, and it's the opposite of the metaphysician. The metaphysician is inside the world and orders it. The shaman is a little bit in between, still mm -hmm. of the world. The mystic is from outside of the world entirely. He is completely a foreigner in every land. And... Like, for example, when in the gospel, according to John, uh, Jesus Christ says himself that, you know, like, I've taken you from the world. You're no longer of the world. This mystical element comes through in the sense of that the mystic does not belong to the world, belongs to the eternity, doesn't belong to time, belongs to ineffability, doesn't belong to language, and so on and so forth. So in a way, it is an agent of chaos, if you like, much more than the metaphysician. But from a perspective where chaos and order are dissolved. So you see our three influences that are complementary very much and opposite. And this idea of keeping them together in a coincidence of opposites required the fourth one, the prophet, which is capable with its song, so to say, with, with its speech, with language, with narrative, to keep together the, the, 
the coincidence of opposites of these three different approaches. Do you have all of these three figures inside of you? Have you experienced those kind of positions? I think like, like many people that write philosophy, let's say that I am more like a pair of glasses than a pair of eyes. In the sense that like I, <laughs> I, I try to um, suggest and provide ways of looking at things in a certain way. They don't necessarily mean that I, I, um, I am like that. Because I, I was also struck by the style in which you, I mean, you, you break certain rules when it comes to writing a book, but I mean, I think it's consciously uh, done so, uh, like not ending a chapter with a, with a quote, uh, beginning your book by saying uh, what you're going to say, and then you say it, and then you, you know, wrap it up, those kind of things. And so I sense that uh, when doing, when doing philosophy, the way that you're doing philosophy, you're also you're also inventing philosophy. So in that sense, I felt that maybe maybe Federico has actually sensed one of these different positions and somehow also the, the grotesque-ness of like being a thinker trying to, to think things differently and write things differently. Yes, in a sense, yes. But um, let's say that uh, I have experienced these things myself to the extent to which, um, for example, a theoretician of music has to be a musician. But it doesn't have to be a fantastic musician. You know, it's enough to be a decent yeah. musician. So you're not a great prophet, but you're a prophet. <laughs> no, I think <laughs> you, need to be able, you need to be able a little bit to play the instruments to be able to relate yeah. to the music. You're a theorist, so, not a performer. Yeah, to a certain extent, if, even though I'm, I'm not a very good performer, but I, I do have some familiarity with, with, with the things that I discuss um, by, by necessity. Otherwise, I wouldn't be... First of all, I wouldn't even think about discussing them, but also I, I don't think I would be able to because relying on, on literature, especially when you come to elements like mysticism, which defies literature, or shamanism, which doesn't rely on literature at all, unless in the hands of an anthropologist, then it becomes impossible. So yes, there is an element of that, but and to a certain extent that, so to say, guarantees of the fact that it can be done. I, I don't wish in any way to present myself as the, the epitome of any of these things. Um, let's say once again, I'm more like a theoretician of music rather than a musician or a composer. But as I said, it's like, like a pair of glasses, more, more, more than like the, the eyes of a great artist. I'm wondering who you think is best suited for this task of world building, right? Because I don't suspect that it would be the, the philosophers and the theologians. Because of the aesthetic impulse of your book and the way you sort of foreground it, it makes me think like, Maybe we should be listening more to science fiction writers and reading more comic books and stuff like this. For the examples that I that I use, um, Homer, I present as, as an author of prophetic culture. Homer was a, who knows, I want to believe like those t-shirts that Homer existed. But Mohammed, obviously, or Jesus were great prophets. Then whether Jesus was also the son of God is another question, but like <clears throat> certainly in the way, uh, let's say at least the authors of the gospels have the ability to speak prophetically. But also Plotinus, the great philosopher Plotinus, of the, the, the founding father, so to say, of Neoplatonism, certainly is a prophet in that sense. One, one was a philosopher, one was a poet, one was, well, who knows how to describe exactly either Muhammad or Jesus professionally. So to the extent to which people attune whatever production they do, to a particular register, with a particular viewpoint, with a certain um, distance, first of all, between who they are and where they are and the voice with which they speak, 
I think that's the first immediate thing to delink to a certain extent your supposed identity localization in space-time and the voice that you convey. Hmm? Then to that extent, it is possible to start moving it towards a prophetic register of, of cultural production. You can find it in architecture easily. There are certain types of architecture that have, that have prophetic qualities in that particular way. Paul Valéry, when talking in the book, uh, Eupalinos or the Architect, talks about buildings that sing. And it gives a particular notion of the way in which architecture can do this. Certain types of music have the same ability and so on and so forth. So uh, I would say rather that it is a particular register than a particular um, form of, of creation. So what I heard you say, Matt, was that perhaps those who can create worlds today would be the science fiction authors or perhaps the video game creators or or those who can think outside or think the mystic, the shaman and the metaphysician together. Um, but what I'm hearing you saying now is that the prophet is also someone who's actually, who's not kind of consciously creating worlds, but who's kind of making worlds happen. And, and to that extent, you can't be kind of an, an author who's like co conscious of your own creativity, but you're actually you have to believe that you're Jesus, so to say. No, no, no. <laughs> I say in the book that the prophet is not a creator, is a position towards yeah. the world. It's yeah, a particular exactly. way of conceptualizing reality or ordering reality in your mind. So to the, the moment in which you take a certain stance towards reality, for example, you are capable of seeing the world around yourself as containing ineffability as well as language, eternity as well as time, and so on and so forth. You know, this is the content, of course, of the book, but also of the previous one. To that extent, you are a prophet, whether you like it or not. And you can be just, for example, a parent. You cannot write anything. You just, you're a parent, you live in a certain way, you have an influence on your children in a particular way, and the influence that you have on them is just de facto prophetic. Mm. Um, so you don't need to be a video game designer or anything else, or Jesus Christ. You could be anyone with a particular stance towards worlding, because the metaphysical attitude that one has towards worlding already, always, and already influences the way in which you do anything. The behaviors are based on the, your notion of sense. You do things that have sense. That's why everybody does good. Nobody does evil willingly, obviously, no? People make mistakes, but nobody's evil because everybody acts according to the senses they perceive. On the basis of their sense, the sense has to do with their metaphysical stance, first and foremost, let's say, is the basic foundation of the game. So by modifying that, sense is modified. By modifying your idea of reality, sense is modified and behaviors are modified accordingly. And also aesthetics, artistic creations, and whatever else you do. Um, you don't have to be, as I was saying, uh, Jesus. Um, also, also in the sense that, of course, being a prophet. I'm very relieved to hear you say that, by the way. <laughs> But being a prophet also is, is a way of depotentiating yourself. It, it, like, uh, like the case of Jesus is controversial, of course, because according to a Christian view, Jesus is not a prophet, is a um, is, is the son of God and God and so on. But let's if we imagine another typical prophetic figure, Moses, for example, Moses is just a guy. <laughs> you know, that's it. In the book, I, I also point out with a stutter, which is an important aspect of its being a, of his being a prophet. So it doesn't require any uh, particular divinity or um, moral standing or purity and so on and so forth. You don't have to be an exceptional person in that way. 
you have to have a particular way outlook towards metaphysics and the rest does follow. I think what I meant by saying you have to believe that you're Jesus is, is that you have to kind of inhabit that space. You can't, you, it's not about that kind of distant creating of the world, but but you have to kind of embody it and just be, that's what the position requires, that you can't help but world. <laughs> I would say more modestly, for example, the way in which uh, narrative creations, for example, function. Um, Hamlet, let's imagine, Romeo and Juliet, you know, just easy example. Hamlet, Romeo and Juliet, they are not just characters, they are positions towards certain emotional registers. You can occupy their same position. You don't have to become Hamlet or to become Romeo and Juliet, but they speak to you in certain moments with, when you have certain dispositions towards, in that particular case, uh, some emotional uh, events, hmm? you are them to a certain extent without any outer sign. So in that sense, yes, you become, to read the Quran properly, you have to become Mohammed, but simply in the sense that you occupy his same position. In the same way that sometimes you, you read a certain novel and it, it really speaks to you because you occupy the position of the characters or to a certain extent you find yourself in the same position as, as the character. It is a cognitive shift. It doesn't require any particular uh, visible outer transformation. To clarify, this doesn't necessarily mean that it's easy. When I say this doesn't mean, this doesn't mean that, I don't mean to say in the way in which, for example, sometimes people say everybody is an artist. Whatever you do, just do it with love and you're an artist. Mm -hmm. it's, not, it's, not, it's not that easy. This is not a self-help book. But, um, but I'm just saying that the linked with the particular requirements in terms of outer production, in terms of particular identities, in terms of particular uh, professional legitimations. Yeah, but there's nonetheless this thread of performativity that runs that runs through it, um, which I yeah. think is important. Since we've, you've been talking for some time, could we perhaps end with the death? Have, have you talked about death? Because you began with, uh, I think, the Bergman uh, movie and also the, the future behind you idea. But but it's also, in a sense, I felt that it's an over, your book is an overcoming of death. And I was fascinated by the way in which you embraced uh, the Islamic, uh, well, that, that trajectory within Muslim faith that uh, has a way of handling and kind of postponing or and yet embracing death and the way in which you elevated the squire in uh, the Bergman Seven Seal rather than, than the knight. Can you say yeah. something about that? Yeah, well, um, interestingly, to a certain extent, maybe, um, that bit about the squire and, and Bergman came to mind a few years ago. I wrote a little piece at the beginning about them. One day when I was at an Extinction Rebellion demonstration, quite a few years ago, I have to say, and they struck me as this form of rebellion against death with the fact that they, they didn't want to go extinct. And so that's how it first came. And then it, it changed with time because I started realizing that it's not so much rebelling against death in the sense that we want to be alive forever in the way of Elon Musk or whatever other millionaire wants to, I don't know, cryogenically froze their brain or something like that. But in the sense that we have the possibility of looking at the event of death in many different ways. One of these ways is to take it literally. The letter of it is that you have a situation in which things are only what you can catalog linguistically, for example, this. Hmm? An event is that event, 
uh, and death is that event in which this linguistic layer shatters. And so we take it literally as the end of that thing. But this is only one way of looking at death. And we have taken it fanatically as the truth and superstitiously, of course. There are other ways of looking at death, depending once again on your particular metaphysics, according to which death itself is a non-event. Yeah. Not simply because, as Seneca used to put it, to, 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 calm, to calm people down, when, when death comes, you are gone, and when, when you are there, death is not there. Not in that way. But in the sense that the event of the, of the end of certain linguistic qualities, which we catalog in the world, only affects those linguistic qualities. If we believe that that's all there is, then that's it. But if we realize that, of course, what we can apprehend and catalog and name cannot coincide with the totality of existence. It would be an incredible coincidence if the entirety of the universe was created precisely to match in its foundational uh, basis exactly our cognitive abilities to the point that our language really yeah. captures it. That would be much more unlikely than the pastafarians and the flying spaghetti monster. You know, that, that, that's a, such an incredibly superstitious belief that belief. Of course, then we have to realize that beyond language, there is something in reality, and of course, death being an event that befalls specifically language, death as we conceptualize it is specifically a linguistic event, then it is not affecting non-linguistic entities. In that sense, as you find in the Corpus Hermeticum, for example, death itself does not exist. You have, it does not exist at all. And then John the Squire has that rebellion. Of course, in the film, he actually just doesn't want to die because he just loves uh, women and food and alcohol, whatever. Like, he's a particular character, okay? But in the way in which I, I utilize it, and then I invent a, a, a pseudo-biography of John the Squire who goes to Syria and so on and so forth. Yeah, his I know. He's this uh, kind of holy man. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's the typical old trick of the Alexander romance. Alexander the Great, in the later retellings of the story, in the Muslim world in particular, becomes a Muslim, a saint, mm -hmm. a philosopher, goes in the land of wonders. You know, you, you make him do stuff. Uh, and sorry, I, I used John's Squire a bit like Alexander. Um, but his rebellion is simply about the anguish, the superstitious belief and the anguish that comes with the superstitious belief. The attempt, of course, is similar, mutatis mutandis, of course, and at a different level, uh, what Epicurus tries to do in the Rerum Natura. Because Epicurus utilizes his particular tetrapharmacon, which is an Epicurean borrowing, of course, mostly to calm people down to tell them like the, the thunder that you hear is not the gods being angry at you, just there is a crazy superstitious belief, relax, okay? And in a sense, also relaxing one's own attitude towards death is I think important, it does have value in the sense that it modifies the way in which we are connected to the experience of living. The incredible feeling of frustration that you have from a staunch materialistic approach, I think it goes quite together with certain hyper-violent behaviors that typically come from frustration. You believe that your life, the material life and the linguistic life is all there is. It is an absurd cruelty to bring you into the world and to subject you to this shambolic charade. And then whatever you have achieved to take it away. And then of course, as you approach the end, any person endowed with sense would just try to release their frustration by destroying as much as possible of the world around themselves. It is a good behavior in the sense that it makes sense, but it depends on one's idea of what death actually constitutes. If we have a modified different idea, things change. 
Of course, if you have an imagination that after death, there is another life in which you are judged for your sins and all that kind of stuff, you modify your life in a certain way. If you think that afterwards there is a cycle of reincarnations, then you modify it in a certain way. If you think of death as a non-event, then you modify it in another way. I guess I will kind of go back to what I was saying earlier about my idea of this being the afterlife, because I do agree with you that this is something I've come to recently, that death has no real existence as such. I guess I'm too much of a Nietzschean. I've onboarded the eternal recurrence. So yeah, this is it, but it's this every time (laughs) for eternity. That's the challenge to So you're live. a kind of reincarnational Nietzschean, Matt. I didn't know that. Something like that. I haven't really spent much time putting those thoughts together, but I, I really do I like that idea of death not being something that comes at the end, but something that's experienced within life and having died a couple of times, like I'd say I don't recommend it. <laughs> oh, yeah. I, I, but I do like the idea of death as a pair of glasses because and the death as we are taught to kind of accept and embrace it, that's just one of the pair of glasses that you can choose kind of thing, Absolutely. Uh, which is very limited. Yeah. And also to comment on what Matt was saying about the eternal return, interestingly, there is a way of, of keeping the two together. It was theorized by Emanuele Severino, a philosopher who passed away not long ago, but maybe two years ago. Um, he had this notion working, most, he had a very interesting thing. He was basically a Parmenidean. He believed that being is, non-being is not. Okay, And on the basis of this, he um, basically goes against our understanding of things at the moment as things that can come out of non-existence, exist, and then fall into non-existence. So being born, being alive and dying, okay? There's a a movement in and out of existence. He says, if we use that that notion, then we are contradicting ourselves because then existence will be something that at some point isn't, at some point is, and at some point isn't again. So fundamentally, existence would be for the most part, for the almost totality, except the glimmer, which is the present, would be non-existence. So what kind of existence is that, which isn't the vast majority of of, of itself? And of course, he comes to the idea that then, Everything is eternal. Things existing can exist only to the extent to which are eternal. Anything that exists, exists eternally. But not only, he says, in general terms, but also specifically, because also this particular moment on this particular day in which we are meeting and this particular situation, being an existent, is eternal. The same movement of this particular situation within the spotlight of the present being an event which exists is eternal. So there is an eternal return, yes, but not an eternal return in the sense that it's cyclical, one yeah. after the other, but sure. an eternal return in the sense that it is eternally omnipresent. Yeah, it's you- a, right. I never took it to be a sort of metaphysical proposition. No, I, I think it was me. I added the reincarnation. It was just some, the way you said it, Matt. Yeah. yeah, but I love that idea because then a consequence of of what you're kind of putting forward there is that that nothing is truly lost and that's for me actually a comforting comforting thought <laughs> i think, I think uh, rilke has that rilke in the you know elishi so what's it called in english uh, has that in a, in a poem as well about the once this only for once but that kind of once as a kind of eternity but the eternity of of the present and the existence only in the moment i think it is uh, you sense it is a kind of a love poem 
But there was something that I read in your book that made me think of, about that. And because I know that all, Thomas Altice, the radical theologian, he puts uh, that Rilkean thought from that poem together with uh, with Nietzsche's eternal return, actually, and in order to kind of rethink the Jesus event. I didn't know. I didn't know that. I'd like to. Uh, yeah, please um, send me the name so I can I can check it. He, he's truly a prophet. That's why so Altais was with me when reading because he he found that kind of prophetic uh, tune that was also rather grotesque. <laughs> I mean, in the sense that you uh, that that you explicated. Yeah, and unfortunately, I'm very sorry, but the, I have a meeting right now in in a minute. Okay, um, we'll let you go. Thank you so much for. I'm so sorry for being. No, no, it's okay, but maybe should we say goodbye for the for the recording? <laughs> well, what's the thing you say? You write. I don't, I'm going to say this wrong. Una braccio. Is that right? See, I, I don't want to disappear without saying bye. It's like yeah, no. And then, <laughs> very good. It was good talking to you. Thank you. It's been a real pleasure, and take care. Thank, Thank you. you. Bye bye. again to Federico for speaking with us again much appreciated thank you for listening all the way to the end uh, your taste is obviously impeccable or you have nothing better to do graphics sound design and outro music by Matt Baker peace